And so we're in John 1. We're going to be looking at the first several verses as we read. And uh, let me begin uh, with a story. So um, a while back, I was uh, watching an interview with Oprah Winfrey. And uh, in this interview, she told the story. I thought it was hilarious. She was, uh, she was uh, walking her dogs by her home in Chicago. And as she was walking down the street, she said, you know, she didn't have her Oprah face on, no makeup, you know, just uh, dressed in street clothes. But she's walking down the street, and there's a guy on the other side of the street who starts to catcall Oprah. And so he yells out to her, and he says, uh, hey, baby, how you doing? Hey, baby, hey, baby, how you doing? And she's like, oh, my gosh. And so she looks straight ahead. She tries to ignore him and just walk on by but the guy won't have it. He, he looks at her and he says, what? What's wrong? Can't talk to nobody? Too good to talk to nobody? Come on, baby. What's your name? What's your name? And so she finally just stops and says, okay, I'm going to tell him. And so she looks at him and she says, my name is Oprah Winfrey. And he says, you wish? <laughs> you wish you was Oprah? Sometimes the truth is so surprising, so outside of our categories, that we cannot help but meet it with unbelief, astonishment, and skepticism. And this is the kind of truth that we're confronted with at Christmas time. Because Christmas is about a claim, it's about a, an earth shattering, uh, astonishing claim about Jesus. And you know, when you, when you get into Christmas, you know, a lot of times you can make it less than what it really is. You know, Christmas becomes about lights, it becomes about Christmas trees, it becomes about family, which are all good things, all very good things, but they are less than what Christmas is really about. Christmas is an astonishing claim, an astonishing claim about Jesus. And when you think about this, this is, this is amazing, uh, given who Jesus was. Jesus was born uh, in an obscure village. He was a child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book, never held a political office. He never led an army. He never owned a home. He, had, he never had a family, uh, never went to college. <clears throat> he never did any of the things that many of us associate with greatness. And yet, the impact of his life is so deep that every year the world stops to celebrate his birth. Right, his impact is so great that we organize our, enti our entire calendar around him before Christ and after Christ. And so Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is indeed an astonishing claim, right? And until we're astonished by Christmas, Christmas will never change us. And so uh, what I want to do is look at the claim about Jesus uh, that really what, that we learn about during Christmas time <clears throat> today. And uh, we're going to do this, <clears throat> excuse me, by looking at John, the Gospel of John. Uh, John 1, the first several verses, we're going to be looking at it for the next several weeks. And uh, John is, a, a, is a, essentially a biography of Jesus. He's one of four biography, uh, biographies of Jesus. So there's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are all stories that his followers wrote about his life, right? And uh, unlike all the other biographies, uh, biographies of Jesus, uh, John starts in a different place. So like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they start with the events around Jesus' birth, right? He, where he was born, he was born in Bethlehem. You know, the, the kind of the, the circumstances around that, born in a manger, born among the, the, the peasants. Uh, you know, all this kind of the normal things about Jesus' birth and what the other uh, biographies are about. But John, the, the biography of John starts somewhere entirely different. John starts with 
prehistory. He starts with cosmic history. And what John is doing in this story about Jesus is, is right up front, right at the very beginning, John is making an astonishing claim. He's saying something really incredible about, about who Jesus was, right? And, and why we, we celebrate him every year, why we organize our, our history around this man. And so today what I want to do is just look at the first several verses, and I want us to see three astonishing claims about Jesus that John makes. Um, I want us to see three breathtaking, um, you know, earth-shattering, astonishing claims that John makes about Jesus. Okay, so number one, uh, the first thing John tells us about Jesus is that Jesus is none other than the creator God. And so John begins his little narrative with, in the beginning. <laughs> in the beginning. Now, uh, any good Jew, when they, when they heard the words, in the beginning, what would they think of? Creation. Right, Genesis 1.1. Uh, what John is doing here is, this is a deliberate echo of Genesis 1.1, the creation narrative. And so he goes back there to cosmic prehistory, and he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he says in verse three, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And so what's the claim that John is making here is that Jesus Christ, the word of God, is the creator of the universe, right? The little baby who was born in a manger in Bethlehem was the one who, who created the cosmos, Right? And he puts a fine point on it. He says, listen, nothing was made that was made that was not made by Jesus. Right? He's saying Jesus Christ is the eternal, uncreated creator of the universe. Astonishing to the Jew. But it would have been astonishing to the, to the, to the Greek. Because John goes and he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word word there in Greek is the Greek word logos. And uh, logos was one of the most important words uh, in all of Greek philosophy. Um, it was a word that was used by Plato and Zeno and Philo. And it was a word that was used to describe the, the, the reason or the logic behind uh, the created order, right? And so the Greek philosophers, they looked at the created order and they, they noticed that it was, there was a balance to creation, there was, uh, there was an order to creation. There was a harmony in creation. And so they posited that there was a creator. There was a logic behind creation. There was a rationality behind the created order. And that's what the word logos means. It means, it means logic. And so for the Greek, the logos was the logic, the organizing principle that held everything together. It was the rational principle that ran through all things seen and unseen. And, and John says that Jesus Christ is the Lagos. Would have been astonishing to the Greek. Right, and so here in one sentence, John astounds both worlds of his day, the Jew and the Greek. And he says, Jesus Christ is none other than the rationality behind the cosmos. He is none other than the creator God that made everything at the very beginning. There's a little line here in John, in John 1 where he says this. <clears throat> he says, he, speaking of Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him. Now stop right there. He was in the world and the world was made through him. I mean, that's an amazing claim. 
As the old uh, Christmas carol said, lo, within the manger lies the one who made the starry skies. Jesus Christ, the man who walked Galilee, was none other than the creator of the universe. He was God. And this is John's thesis all the way through his book. And so John begins with this, Jesus Christ is the Logos, in the beginning he created the world. And throughout his, his biography, he's making the argument that, that, this is, that Jesus, he must be this man because he shows that Jesus does things that only God could do and he says things that only God could say. And so, for example, Jesus Christ walks on water. Who else could walk on water except for the one who created all things, the one who has power over the created order? He was God. Only God could walk on water. He raises the dead, right? God is the author of life. He, he holds all of our breath in his hands. And when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, uh, when he rose Lazarus from the dead, he was showing that he has power over death and the grave. Jesus Christ does things that only God could do. He says things that only God can do. And so one point, point Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, and another point, Jesus says, I am the judge. <laughs> I am the judge of the universe. Who else could say that but the creator God? There's one place where the Pharisees are trying to trip up Jesus, and Jesus had made some astonishing claim, and uh, they said, are you claiming to be better than Abraham, more important than our father Abraham? And what did Jesus say? He said, before Abraham was, I am. Right? I am, that's another way to say Yahweh. Jesus Christ was taking the name, the Old Testament name of the creator God. The name that came to Moses out of the burning bush. Jesus says, I am. I've always existed. I was there in the beginning. I was there before uh, anything was present. I was the creator of everything. Jesus Christ here, John is saying, is the creator God. Now, this is astounding, and uh, throughout church history, uh, it was so astounding that, that subsequent uh, Christians sort of softened the claim, right? And so there was a heresy in the early church called Arianism, and uh, started by a guy named Arius, and Arius believed that Jesus Christ was just a man. He was a really good man, a very moral man, but just a man. He wasn't God. And Arius said there once was a time when he was not, right? So Jesus Christ was great but he was a created being. And there was another heresy in the early church called docetism, uh, which came from the Greek word dikeo, uh, meaning to seem. And what they said was that Jesus Christ just seemed to be a man. He was God, but he wasn't a man. He just seemed to be a man. He was sort of a spirit being. And so when he walked, he didn't leave footprints. Right, so there, there was this tendency to soften this claim. And then there were, there were councils trying to reassert, no, 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 John says that Jesus Christ was, was the creator. And so in one council, they came up with this term uh, called the hypostatic union. Can we all say that? The hypostatic union, which essentially was saying that God, Jesus Christ was 100% man and 100% God. He wasn't half man and half God. He was fully God and fully man. You know, and I just wanted, you know, in the first point here, I wanted, you know, in one sermon to put the words Arianism, Docetism, and Hypostatic Union in one sermon. Merry Christmas. John here is making an astonishing claim. Jesus Christ 
is none other than the creator God. But he's also saying something else here. He's saying not only is Jesus Christ the one who created the world, but secondly, Jesus Christ, here's another claim, Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. Notice he says here, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then down in 14, he says, um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then nine, or 18, he says, and no one has ever seen God, the only God who is in the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus Christ is, is the one who reveals God to us. He's the revelation of God. And notice John calls him the word, right? He, Jesus Christ is God's speech. Jesus Christ is God's communication to human beings, and what John is saying here is that the only way to truly know God, the only, you know, God, who, who, God is invisible, right? Who, who is, who, how could we ever know the invisible God? And John says, here's how you know. Here's the only way you know. You only know God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is God's word. He is God's communication. He is God's revelation to humanity. And when you think about this, I mean, it's important to, Words are important in knowing people, right? Uh, you know, you really don't know a person until you've had a conversation with them. Uh, many of you have children, and, uh, you know, kids, before they can talk, you know them, they're your kids, but how much more do you know them when they begin to talk to you, right? You know, I've got, I've got four boys, and uh, Anita, you know, she likes them, and she likes them just like I do. Um, I didn't tell her I was going to use this illustration, but she loves babies, and I love babies too, but when the babies begin to talk, oh, I love that. Because you get, you, you get to learn something about what's going on in their little minds, you know, and what's going on in their heart, what's going on on the inside. It comes out, and you begin to really know your children when they begin to speak. And what John is saying is Jesus Christ is God's speech, And you really don't know God until you begin to learn God in the face of Jesus. Uh, but before Jesus, you can infer some things about God. I mean, you can infer things about God uh, from nature, right? You, you could look at Niagara Falls and infer that God is powerful. You could look at the, you know, the stars in the sky and infer that God is uh, you know, vast and huge. You could look at the order of the universe and infer that God is intelligent. You could look at the beauty of the world and infer that God is creative. But you're just making inferences about God. You don't fully know God in nature. Nature only takes us so far. Nature is also brutal, right? You know, watch a planet Earth and see those monkeys eating each other, right? Nature is red in tooth and claw. So nature only shows us so much about God. You can only infer so much about God from observing nature. If you really want to know God, you need to listen to God speak. This is when you truly know him. And what John is saying is Jesus Christ is God's word. And you may have a neighbor, right? You, have a, you may have a neighbor that you've never spoken to, and you, you can infer certain things about the neighbor. They leave at 8 o'clock every morning. They come home at 5 o'clock every evening. 
You know, maybe you see the way they dress and you infer maybe they're a doctor wearing scrubs or maybe they're a businessman wearing business casual. Uh, You can infer that they're maybe not nice people because they don't smile at you, but really you don't know them until you can talk to them. Jesus Christ is the speech of God. Jesus Christ is the only place where God is truly and fully known. And what this means is that we have, I mean, it's a, Jesus Christ gives us an astonishing picture of who God is, doesn't he? Jesus Christ shows us that God is humble. He was born in a stable. He washed people's feet. This is what your God is like. Jesus Christ shows us that God is a God of compassion because he loved outsiders and he embraced the lepers. Jesus Christ shows us that God is love. How do you know that God is love? You don't infer that God is love from nature, not really. In order to really know that God is love, you've got to see Jesus laying his life down for you. Later on, John in one of his letters says, God is love. How did he know that? He knew it only because he observed the love of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God the Father. At one point, Jesus uh, was talking to Thomas, doubting Thomas, and Thomas says, just show us the Father, and that will be sufficient, sufficient, fish, fishing, what am I saying? That will be sufficient for us. And Jesus said, Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Later on, Colossians says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. We know God in the face of the human man, Jesus Christ. Mark Strom wrote a beautiful uh, little poem about this, the beautiful God that we learn in Jesus Christ. And he says this, this God could put on, speaking of the God of Jesus, the God that we know in Jesus, he says this God could put on eyebrows and kneecaps tear ducts, and saliva glands. This God could start life a vulnerable, hunted child born into scandal. This God could grow up under foreign domination among terrorists and outcasts. This God could sit in the street playing marbles. This God could wear with pride the calloused, splintered hands of an honest workman. This God could ask his cousin to baptize him along with the rest of the crowd. This God could make the best vintage Pinot Noir even though the guests were too drunk to know the difference. This God could befriend a fellow in a tree with small man syndrome. I understand that man. This God could allow a woman of questionable character to wash his feet, giving her his full undivided attention. This God could spend a whole night making a whip to crack over the back of con artists and who rip off the poor. This God could wrap the greatest truths in the simplest stories. This God could let himself hang on a tree, nails tearing sinews, blood, feces, and urine running down his legs. This God could raise me to life with him. This God could, all, could never be safe, but always be good. This God, this God is worth knowing. This God I want to know. This is the God I know in the face and spirit of Jesus. Second astonishing claim, Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. Nobody's seen God. And the only way God is known is in looking and learning about the words and life and death of Jesus. He reveals God to us. Thirdly, uh, third astonishing thing about Jesus, Jesus Christ is the life of God. So notice Uh, John says, look, in the beginning, Jesus was there. In the beginning, he created the world. All things were created through him. 
He's the word. We know God through him. He's God's revelation. But then finally in verse four, he says this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. John tells us the third thing about Jesus. Jesus is the life. Jesus Christ is the life. And this, again, this is astonishing. This is a breathtaking claim that Jesus made, often about himself as well. So throughout the Gospels, Jesus was always saying things like, I am the bread of life, right? Eat, eat from me, taste of me. Uh, uh, in me is life, the life of God, the life that you need. I am the bread of life. In another place, he said, I am the resurrection and the life, right? He says, I am the life. I, I am eternal life. Jesus was not like every other religious teacher. Uh, every other religious teacher says, I, I can point you to life. Here, here, here are some rules, and if you, if you live according to these rules, you might get eternal life when you die. Or if you, if you go, you know, take this path or go on this pilgrimage, I'll point you to life. Only Jesus Christ said, I am the life. I don't just point to life. I am the life to which all the other teachers point. And when, when Jesus said he was the life, he was saying, I am your deepest need. In me, uh, in myself, is, is your deepest need. At the very beginning at creation, uh, human beings, beings lived within the life of God. Right? In the Garden of Eden, human beings walked with God in the cool of the day. And they were in relationship with their creator. And from that relationship, they drew life, not just physical life. God did give us that. He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, but spiritual life, life that comes from being connected to our creator. But then Adam and Eve sinned and they walked away from God, and when that happened, they severed themselves from God's life. And what the book of John says, it will go on to say here in in the next few verses, is that when we were severed from God's life, we began to walk into darkness. And the further away we got from God's life, the the deeper into the darkness we, we went. A few weeks ago, I went to a blowing cave out there in Cushman, and uh, anybody else else ever been there? Um, we went out there, and we went into this cave, and and it's really it's it's an amazing thing. It's it's this huge, massive thing, and you walk deeper and deeper into the cave. And we walked in there with all of our kids, and um, we turned off the lights. We had little flashlights. We we turned them off. We shut them off. And when you're deep in a cave like that, and you shut off the lights, it is dark. It is really dark and scary and cold. And I started crying. No, I didn't. I didn't cry. I was very brave. And I, and I walked out of the cave, and we saw a man there at the front. And I said, man, we, if you shut off the lights in there, it gets dark. It gets really, really dark. And he said, oh, it gets more than dark. It gets darker than dark. He says, in that cave, when it gets dark, dark darkness becomes a force. It almost becomes palpable. And if you went into that cave and you shut off those lights and you never come out, came out, the life would, would slowly begin to deplete out of your body and you'd shrivel. And John said that there's something akin to that to being in this world. You're in darkness. We're all in darkness. Separated from the life of God. But here's the claim of Christmas. Jesus Christ is the life. He's the life of God that we were cut off from at the very beginning. He's the life of God broken into this world. And at one point he stood up and he said, I am the vine. 
I am the vine, in me is life, and if you will connect yourself to me, you will live too. And you will bear fruit, and your fruit will remain. No other religious teacher said this. Nobody else said that, (laughs) connect yourself to me because in me you find your very life. Only Jesus. Jesus is saying human life is only comprehensible in reference to him. You can only know who you are uh, when you see yourself in reference to him. All other attempts to find yourself outside of finding yourself uh, in Christ are doomed to failure because he's the author of your life. And he's who you were made for. He's the goal of your life. He's the essence of life. At one point, uh, Jesus, uh, in his ministry, he started saying things that that made people start going away. They they stopped following him and walking away. Claims like this, he started saying things like this, like, I am the bread of life and I'm the light of the world. And people started walking away. And then he looks at the 12 and he says, are you going to go away too? And do you remember Peter looked back at Jesus and he said, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We found our definition in you. We found our life in you. In you we found out what it means to truly live. Where else are we gonna go? You alone in this world, in this dark world, have the words to life and light. Three claims Jesus makes here. He says, uh, or John makes about Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ is the creator God. Astounding. Second of all, he says that Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. He's the word of God, the communication of God. The only way to know God is in Jesus. Thirdly, he says, Jesus Christ is the life of God. The life that you need. The life that shines in the darkness. Jesus says, I I don't just point to life. I am the eternal life. Life of God in the flesh. So let's apply this. So, so John has given us the, the, these claims. What does John want us to do with the claims? What do we, Christmas is amazing, right? It's not just about lights. It's about, this, about Jesus Christ and who he is. What, what, what do we do with this? And, and at the end of his book, John tells us what he wants us to do. John 20, uh, verses 30 to 31, John says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I think the first thing John wants us to do with the information that he's giving us here is he wants us to believe. Believe in Jesus. And not just that he's a good man or a moral teacher. He says, I'm writing this so that you would believe this, this astonishing thing that Jesus Christ is your creator and that you could know God through him and that life is defined in him. I want you to believe, John says, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And by believing, he means put your life in his hands. Trust in him. Define yourself by him. Give yourself to him. And I think this is a rational thing to do. So C.S. Lewis, um, after reading about claims like this, C.S. Lewis was an atheist until he was 30 years old. And he was a very smart, you know, Oxford scholar, a brilliant guy, and, he, and, he, and he, he was an atheist for a while and finally believed in Jesus. And it wasn't until he began to wrestle with the claims like this 
that he was actually brought into true belief. And this is how he says he was convinced. He says, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. John says, I'm pushing you into a corner here. I'm forcing your hand. He's not just one moral teacher among many moral teachers. You either believe who he said he was, who John said he was, or you walk away. Have you believed? John wants us to believe, but I think he also wants us to see the beauty in this. John wants us to see the beauty. There's, there's a novelist, her name is Dorothy Sayers, and uh, Dorothy Sayers uh, wrote detective novels. Uh, she lived in the 30s, uh, early 20th century. And in one of her novels, there was, uh, she, there was this main character, it was a series of books, uh, a main character named Lord Peter Whimsey. And he was, uh, he was a detective, he was an aristocrat, he was also very lonely, he was a bachelor. Uh, he was r- really broken. And about halfway through the series, Dorothy Sayers started to feel sorry for the character that she wrote about. And so she writes in a love interest in the middle of the, of the series. It was a woman named Harriet Vane. And Harriet Vane was a mystery writer, and she was the first woman to graduate from Oxford in the story. And so, of course, uh, Lord Peter Whimsey loves her, and they fall in love, and they get married. And uh, she, she takes this unhappy bachelor, this broken man, and she heals his broken heart. And what's interesting is when you look at Dorothy Sayers, the author, she herself was one of the first women graduates of Oxford, and she was a detective novelist. In other words, Dorothy Sayers wrote herself into her own novel in order to heal the main character. And here's the beauty of of Christmas, is God the creator wrote himself into his own story in order to heal you and me. It's beautiful. You know, you may may be skeptical about this, but almost everybody wishes it were true, right? right? What a beautiful thing to be true, that the author of the universe wrote himself into our story in Jesus. I think John also wants us to change our lives. Because like I said, uh, this claim that he makes at the very beginning of his book, it sort of forces our hand, doesn't it? Because you cannot be neutral about Jesus, not at all. He can't just be a piece of furniture in your life. You know, one thing among many other things that you're doing. What this this claim is telling us is that Jesus Christ needs to take the central place. And we need to get off the fence about him. When, when I was younger, uh, I had a, a pastor, a youth pastor, who used to always tell me, Brent, stop being a mugwump. And I didn't realize it at the time, but this is a political insult that uh, one political party used to say to the other one. That was a name for a fence sitter because it was somebody that had their mug on one side of the fence and their wump on the other. 
And he said, you could be this way with Jesus. You could, you could be a fence sitter. So that Jesus is, is in your life, but he's not the central thing. He's part of the furniture, but really your life doesn't organize around him like our calendar does, B.C. and A.D. What John wants us to do is put Jesus Christ at the center. He's our definition. He's the only one who has the words of eternal life. He's the only way to know God. He's your creator. He, he built you. He knows what's best for you. And he says, I want to be at the center of your life. And I was thinking this week how in my life, there, there are so many things in my life that just get way too important, that take the central spot, you know, and things that, that I think, man, everything stands or falls on this. You know, everything stands or falls on this business decision I'm gonna make. Or everything stands or falls on this fin- financial issue that I'm dealing with. Or this, or this failure that, that I've made. I mean, everything stands or fall, this, falls, this failure defines me. And what John says is that nothing should define you except for Jesus Christ. He should be at the center of your life. He created you, he redeemed you. He's the word of God who created everything. He's the only way to know God. He is the life. And he says, put me at the center. This is what Christmas is about. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you, we thank you for uh, this this passage, which for me this week, I just kept on going back to how breathtaking, how astonishing, how, how unbelievable in some ways uh, John, the first few verses here in John really are. And, and God, I pray that we would respond, respond appropriately to the, the claim that John makes here at the beginning. God, if there are those of us here that are, that are searching, uh, investigating Christianity, I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to them God, for those of us who are your followers, we pray that you would help us to put you at the center, that you would take uh, the rightful place in our lives. God, that everything else, everything else in our lives would would just be furniture, God, and, and, and that you would be the central piece. God, you would be the central piece, the thing that defines us, uh, the most important thing. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.